Okay. The text there. <laughs> I can see. Um, a prayer. Te damos gracias, Señor, por tu amor, misericordia y por todas las cosas que tú um, nos permites hacer, ver, oír, escuchar, sentir, oler, por, por tu belleza, tu magnitud, por todas las cosas, Dios mío, que tu misericordia nos hace seres humanos. En el nombre de Jesús, ayúdanos. Amén. Eh, before we start the sermon, um, a joke, right? Because we all have to start with a joke. That's kind of like, <laughs> that's what the uh, homiletics professor told me, that before you start a sermon and you're nervous, just say, say a joke. Um, no, my, my wife really said that I'm a absent-minded professor. Um, she said that you can ask me anything about the history of mission. It doesn't matter first, second, third, fourth century, especially 16th century Latin America and 20th century Latin America. I would be like, okay, and I give you a lecture about it. Um, so I'm quite good in mission studies and history. Uh, but when it comes to like normal life, I'm a little lost. Um, <laughs> for example, Um, last time that it was like, I think it was President's Day or one of those Mondays that you don't work and seminaries close. So I work my research in my office because I have a little boy that is two and he's like all over. Um, so I come to seminary to do my research. And suddenly that Monday I just came and suddenly the seminary was closed. And I was like, what's going on? I mean, the rapture came. I'm here. Um, something wrong happened. So I called my wife right away. Hey, seminary is closed. And she said, well, I think it's because it's President's Day. And they don't work on that day or something like that. So I was like, ah, oh, okay, okay, okay. So lo and behold, um, the second week of March, right? This is March. So I'm going to the bathroom. And suddenly, I'm doing my business, and I look to the preaching kind of schedule, and I see, like, Santiago. And honestly, I was like, that looks like my name. <laughs> and then I start, like, reading, like, who is this Santiago? And lo and behold, Angel Santiago, professor of evangelism, And I was like, oh, my God, I didn't even know I have to preach in, in, in March. Um, Jeff, Jeff told me that I have to read my email. <laughs> I told you I'm an absent-minded professor when it comes to all these things. <laughs> um, so that, that's real stories. That's part of um, who I am as a human being, I guess. Um, so welcome to chapel. Um, today's story is a letter with four characters, right? Um, Third John is one of those small letters of the New Testament that is very rich in theological and practical applications. Um, the elder directs the letter to Gaius, a convert or disciple under his leadership. Um, the elder loves Gaius in the truth and praises him because he's walking in the truth. He's happy because some Christians have given testimony about Gaius' faithfulness to the truth. And for him, nothing gives him more joy than to know that some of his children are walking in the truth. 
One of the things that demonstrate that Gaius was walking in the truth was his faithfulness in helping brothers and sisters who were strangers to him. These sisters and brothers went out to the world for the sake of the name, meaning that they were evangelists, missionaries. You may wonder, right, in that text also why pagans, as the other versions have it, should help Christians in spreading the name. And you will be amazed how many uh, gangsters and drug dealers in Puerto Rico help the church pretty much with their tithes and, and <laughs> offerings. And then I have uh, friends, really pastor friends, who live there in the ghetto and and the owner of the spot just comes to church on Sundays because he also needs the Lord. And then he gives like nice, quiet amounts of, of offerings, right? So you will not reject, right, that, I guess. I mean, I will not. Um, <laughs> I, will, I will try to deal with the situation as ethically as I can. Uh, nonetheless, the elder praises Gaius. Because he has shown hospitality to these itinerant preachers. Um, central to this letter um, is that the author's uh, authority, the authority of the elder, ha is being contested and has been effectively kind of excluded from a certain group within the church, especially a guy named Diotrephes, right? whose opposition has extended to even excluding him from the church. And even anyone who sought to help these itinerary preachers uh, who themselves shared the elders' opprobrium. Uh, so he was, you may say, a powerful member of the church, probably a powerful elder, probably a powerful pastor, probably a powerful lay leader or lay person with a lot of money and prestige. Most of the parallels in the Bible when it comes to this issue of exclusion, they are based on doctrinal issues. Uh, for example, the second letter of John 9 through 11 itself uh, talks about denying hospitality to some people who are trying to share in the life of the community. It says, anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in this teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. So if doctrinal issues were here at stake, then both the nature and response of this exclusion will be part of the theology of the letter, you may assume. Uh, but the issue is that there is nothing there. The enigma of the letter is that they, it doesn't make any reference to such issues. Neither is Diotrephes labeled as one who teaches falsely, nor that he's denying Jesus. His faults actually are, are the word that he loved to be in first place, and he characteristically did evil, and therefore hadn't seen God. We may suspect that Diotrephes was successful both in retaining the support of the majority group that followed him 
and somehow isolating and excluding the elder and the faction of the elder church um, that somehow have this counter narrative. And if you see the elder, I mean, it kind of like, like, if I come, I will call attention to what he's doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. So it's not really a, a, a huge rebuke on, on part of the elder. It's like, well, when I go there, if I see him, I will, you know, let, me, let him know my mind, kind of, um, kind of situation. So it was not a really strong kind of condemnation as, as you are deceiving people, taking them to hell, uh, all these things. It's like he, he was kind of gossiper. He, he liked to gossip too much and spread false rumors against the elder and his kind of congregation. Then the four protagonists in this kind of tale, in this letter, um, in the conflict, is then Demetrius. Demetrius. Neither his identity nor his achievements were stated, but presumably he represents worthy of imitation, one who does do good uh, and has seen God. Although he is commended by the community, the elder, and the truth itself, it is not clear really what this guy is doing to deserve so much praise. I guess that he is in the faction of the elder and that he, as Gaius, welcomes the strangers to his house and offers them hospitality. As all of you know from the reading, uh, and from your inductive Bible classes, when you encounter a word that is constant in a uh, narrative, it means that the word is important. In this letter, the word truth appears six times. However, because I was not training IBS at seminary, I will ignore that premise and concentrate on the overarching theme of the narrative that has to do with hospitality. Um, <laughs> Actually, Joseph is around. If you want to ask about truth, ask Joseph. Uh, because he's writing a book on, on truth. And, and there is no one here that knows more about um, the philosophy of truth than our professor Okello. That's for real. So you ask him about what truth means. <laughs> um, hospitality. Hospitality. That's, that's really the... the, the the crux of the letter, um, how a pastor, elder, lay leader, powerful member of the church is against giving hospitality to strangers, right? So hospitality um, is becoming an almost forgotten word or term in Christian virtue in our lifestyle um, today. Particularly in our society in the USA, with its rampant crime on the streets, its locking apartments, gated communities, and all its affluent or, um, urban bourgeois devices which attempt to create this privacy in homes and our lives. I guess that that's the last time that you will hear that word here, the bourgeois. <laughs> For the most part, the term hospitality has lost its moral dimension. And really in the process, most Christians has, um, have lost 
touch with this amazing and rich and complex tradition on hospitality in the Bible. Today, when we think of hospitality, we don't think of welcoming strangers, right? We think of welcoming family in the house and friends and giving them a good time and cooking for them and giving them uh, sodas or wine or whatever you want to give them. Um, kind of having a nice meal, having good time, laughing about things in life. Or then we think about the hospitality industry, right? Um, issues like hospitals, like hostels, like restaurants, um, which are open to the public as long as you have money or, or, or health insurance, right? Um, if not, you will have probably to clean the dishes, to pay for your meal, or you will go to jail maybe. Um, that, that's the kind of hospitality they offer. So it's not much hospitality. I mean, you have to tip the waitress, you, so you know the story. There is no hospitality there. Um, there are even educational degrees on hospitality where you can get a BA, a master's, even a PhD on management of restaurants and uh, all this kind of serving industry. But perhaps also your mind goes to ah, the community, committee of hospitality of the church, right? If you have a big church, if you are in a big church, kind of a big setting, and suddenly you are part of the committee of hospitality, and that committee is supposed to, you know, prepare the coffee, right? And the coffee table, and when guests come, you give them coffee, you give them the mug sometimes, right? With the name of the church, or probably a pencil or a pen with the name of the church, whatever it is, right? So, so that's kind of the hospitality that your committee um, has, right? in the entrance of the sanctuary. Then you have the guy there or the lady. And I will never forget um, one very interesting experience that I have with this kind of hospitality. And because I like to throw people on the middle, I don't care, right? So when I went to Aloma UNC, um, and the greeter was there. I went there like for a year because I really liked Jingo Barros when he was a pastor there. Uh, Yale educated, great sermons, great guy. I mean, good friend. Uh, as soon as they moved him, then I moved too, right? Um, <laughs> but I will never forget, right, my experience with the greeter, the greeter guy. Um, very nice guy. Uh, very cordial, very kind of like, like into it, like, wow, what a nice guy. He even asked me if he can hug me once. And I was like, I don't know, I mean, like, uh, from the distance kind of thing. Um, but very, very kind of, wow, nice guy, nice guy, really nice guy. And suddenly, uh, a Saturday, we were with the family in the mom. David was not born yet, so it was Mimi, Sue, and Daniel. And we were walking on Sears, right? That store Sears in the mall of Orlando Mall. And suddenly we kind of see the guy and I said, Misun, Misun, that's the guy, right? And she said, yeah, yeah, that's the guy. And then the guy just walked by us, look at us, look at the wife and continue. I said, huh, now I have a new look and take of what open doors, open hearts and open minds means in the UMC. A very kind of interesting experience because it's so easy to um, welcome the stranger in their sanctuary and say, hey, come on in and have whatever. 
but it's very difficult to welcome a stranger into your own life and partake of what life means, right? It's kind of a different story. It's kind of something that somehow uh, doesn't go that well in our society. So to understand more about this issue of how human beings are, I kind of like, like the story of, of, of the Samaritan because it's a story that really teaches me always um, kind of like human nature and how many times the people who are supposed to be in the front of the issues are the ones who are back and don't want to even deal with the situation. Remember what happened there, the lawyer asking Jesus, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus questioning him back, what is written in the law? What do you read there? And you know the story. Uh, love your neighbor and yourself, to Jesus. And he said, then do and do likewise. But he wanted to justify himself. So we come back to Jesus. Jesus, who is my neighbor? You know the story, how it goes. And then Jesus goes and the priest saw the guy who was messed up because some robbers beat him up and took his money. And he was all really, really messed up there in the middle of the, of the whatever it was, the, the road. And suddenly a priest passed by and looked at him and this is not my business. Keep on walking. Then the same happened with the Levi, right? The, the people who do the instruments and all this stuff. Again, the same stuff. Oh, that's not my business. The guy really, really looked like messed up. Um, then a Samaritan, right, came. The one who has nothing to do with the Jewish, right? The, the whole tension, the whole kind of hostility against uh, Samaritans and Jews. You know that story, how, how that goes back to centuries and centuries of hostility. And it was the Samaritan who looked at the guy and was moved to mercy and took him and did everything that he did to the guy who was in the middle of the, of the narrative, right? The Samaritan. Um, Jesus said to him then, Go and do likewise. Do like the Samaritan. Don't do like the priest. Don't do like the Levite. Show mercy to people. And for me, what this story teaches me is that the one who shows mercy is really the neighbor. The one who shows mercy is the one who entered into the life of the man who was robbed by, by the bandits and beaten down. The religious people didn't want to enter into that person's life. The religious people actually are very, very sometimes uh, precarious and kind of like they have their own mentality. Self-righteousness, maybe. How can I deal with someone who is bleeding and doesn't look that well? Does any, this story sound familiar to you in any way? Do you show mercy to the needy? You, do you deal with like the messiness of life that, that is out there. There is something really bizarre in my understanding of how some Christians understand this issue of poverty uh, and then they rely more on a political party than the Bible itself when it comes to the poor. I wonder about American political elites often use this language that robs the poor and other marginalized people of their individuality, their humanity, and even their dignity. 
This language also creates this type of social distance between what is middle class, what is American, right? Normal Americans, and then those with economic disadvantages. This type of ideology motivates social cognition that by its very nature is hostile to members of these groups of, low, of the lower rocks of the hierarchical society. Sometimes it adheres to this just world theory, uh, just world theory whereby people who suffer a misfortune are viewed as someone deserving their fate. The tendency of this ideology is not to use systems level thinking as a way to understand that individuals don't exist separate from society. Social psychologists have shown that, in effect, poor people become invisible to the rich and the upper classes. You will never have to, uh, you will never have contact with the poor unless you enter into their world. However, there are many diatrophies in today's Christianity. Leaders who will go at great length to exclude people from entering the kingdom of God. Ask yourself, who is excluded in my church? Who is not worthy of having communion with me here in the pews? Then you have to really ask yourself, who really then is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor if I'm excluding people, if I'm kind of not seeing other human beings uh, through the eyes of dignity, of the dignity of being human? I don't have to say this to you. This is preaching to the choir. We are really living in a very inhospitable society nowadays. The movement from hostility to hospitality is a very difficult one. Our society seems to be increasingly full of fearful, defensive, aggressive people anxiously clinging to their property and inclined to look at their surrounding world with suspicion, always expecting an enemy to suddenly appear, intrude, and do harm. When Christians are bombarded by Fox News or crazy talk radio shows telling them that Islam or Mexicans are the enemy, then they surely will become enemies, even if they have no contact with a Muslim or a Mexican or a Puerto Rican for that matter. We can say that strangers have become more and more subject to hostility than hospitality. In our society, the assumption is that strangers are a potential danger. In a nation emblematic by hostility, God is calling us Christians just to be hospitable. Hospitality as a mission strategy. Hospitality as a lifestyle. Hospitality as something ingrained in your heart because you were saved by mercy and the grace of God is supposed to take away your hostility against other human beings. What is the solution? How can I help the world in this inhospitable place to have some sense of hospitality? How can I help my students when they enter the classroom for me to see them as me, the host, and they are my guests 
and how can I have a classroom uh, that goes from hostility to hospitality? You know that I'm kind of like getting now in my kind of like middle-aged crisis when it comes to, to academia, um, in the sense that, you know, I, I went to college, did my BA in theology and two masters and then a PhD and then went to academia straight up. So I have been most of my adult life in academia. Uh, that's why my wife said that if you put me in another place, I cannot kind of work that well. Uh, it's an ideal world, right? Kind of the world of ideas, um, a world of, of knowledge, a world of all these things. I'm glad that the, um, Jeff talks about Henry Nguyen. I said, oh, at least, you know, I'm saying something positive today. <laughs> you know, uh, Jeff mentioned Henry Nguyen. And Jeff, is because of the help of Henry Nguyen uh, that I have kind of rediscovered in this middle-aged crisis of my life of academia that is very young. I've just been teaching 10 years. But I already think uh, it's middle-aged crisis. Um, about how to reach out. So through that book, Reaching Out, I have discovered that, wait, I mean, there is something wrong here on how I used to conceive theological education. I am opening spaces as a host in my classes by being intentional about hospitality with students. At the beginning of my career, I mean, you just graduate from a kind of prestigious degree department, history in Boston U. So you just think that you know everything and you just going to bombard students with knowledge and they so they can say, wow, professor knows his stuff, right? And as I grow older in academia, I realize that that's not really the purpose. That that's kind of like a, a, a misguided notion that, that you can read the same as I read, just read. Um, I don't have to bombard you with this. What I have to do is somehow make the classroom a hospitable place so you can uh, uh, come somehow engage your own being, your own questions about hate and love, mission, evangelism, whatever it is, psychology, New Testament studies, preaching, whatever it is. Engage yourself. Be vulnerable to others. Deal with knowledge in the sense of how this is helping me to be a better human being. As teachers, we have become insensitive sometimes to the ridiculous situation in which adult students like you feel that they owe us a paper of at least 20 pages, right? And then you are desperate. Oh, the paper of 20 pages. We have lost our sense of surprise when students who are taking our courses, our questions of life and death, actually ask how much is required to fulfill the class. That sounds kind of like a little kind of off to me. As I see it now, I wish that we didn't have a grading system at all. Um, but that's academia in the US. You have to somehow have prove that you know something. Um, when in reality, knowledge, it's not about proving that you master a couple of theologians. Knowledge is about how those theologians help you to deal with your own problem and your own situations and your own humanity. And how those people uh, who are wiser than all of us, right? Because we are reading them uh, more knowledgeable in a way. 
can help us be better human beings. And I wonder if we are just making prima donnas our students. Uh, in the sense that we are giving you a master of divinity. I have always been in very uncomfortable with this issue of masters and doctors. Because you can never master God. You know, you can never doctor a God. How, you going to surgery God now? You know? Um, it's kind of a little ridiculous in a way. But this is our system. So what Nguyen has taught me is how to be present to students uh, by my own vulnerability, by my own questions of joy and peace and happiness and hostility and hospitality, by being vulnerable that, hey, I am the professor, and yes, I have all these degrees, but guess what? I'm human being, and I am no better or worse than you. We are together in this mess meaning human life, meaning the world, existence, problems, real problems that we are facing in today's society. So, how can we eliminate this hostility? How can we really we work to be hospitable in today's world? In a hostile climate, Nobody wants to become vulnerable and make it known to himself, herself, fellow students, or the teacher that some of the most central questions of life are still untouched, unresolved. I try now in these classes to be vulnerable, I said, to have real personal questions about all these issues. Because I think that if we can be vulnerable, and change hostility to hospitality, we probably will better the world and our society. We probably will be doing what the elder told Gaius and Demetrius. Don't be like the Otrephes, right? Who cast out people from his church because they wanted to show hospitality to strangers. Instead, imitate Demetrius, imitate the elders. Be hospitable, and probably the elder, the community, and even the truth itself will give a good testimony or your hospitality to strangers. It is time to change from hostility to hospitality. God bless you all.